Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back, Secret Squad. I'm Robin McGraw, and this is a brand new episode of I've Got a Secret. Mitch Album is an internationally renowned, best-selling author, journalist, screenwriter, and broadcaster. His books have collectively sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. His acclaimed Tuesdays with Maury spent four years on the New York Times bestseller list and is now the most successful memoir ever published. Mitch is here to talk about his fabulous new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, and how he's been able to touch so many people's hearts through his stories over the years. This is The Secret to Writing a Beautiful Life. I am so, so thrilled to have Mitch here today. I'm just, I have to tell all of you listeners out there that I'm sitting here right now with chills, just running up my arms, my legs. I'm so happy. I'm so touched that he has graced us with his presence here today. It's not virtual. It's live. He's here in person. And I just thank you, Mitch, so much. Oh, it's a pleasure, Robin. I'm really happy to be here with you. (laughs) We've known each other for a number of years and I'm proud to call you and Phil my friends, and um, I'm thrilled for the success of your podcast. I'm not surprised because you're a a great host and entertainer and and conversationalist, and having a chance to sit down and talk with you is just great. And this, I have to say, I've been in a lot of studios and podcasts. (laughs) This is the most colorful, brightest, most energized studio Uh that I have ever been in. It's like you walk in and you feel like you landed in a... A dream, oh, you know? Gosh. Beautiful. Gosh, thank you. Yeah, it's really Thank you beautiful. so much. I, and that's why I want to say it. I think that's why I have chills. You are the ultimate pro at everything. And then for any compliment, I'm going to take it. Well, well, <laughs> Anything you, from you. You, you deserve it. So, well, for the listeners, Mitch and I have actually been spending a lot of time together today because Mitch taped Dr. Phil this morning. So do you enjoy coming out to L.A. and doing things like this? You know, uh, Phil and I have known each other... Um, Man, it goes back over 20 years. Uh, and over those years, he was kind enough to come out and, and do some things with me in Detroit. He helped me open a medical clinic yes. that I operate there for homeless uh, people and their children. Mm-hmm. And um, he he uh, he cut the ribbon, you know, yes. was there and helped us get it started. And ever since then, you know, we've been trading visits back and forth in the coast. And, and whenever I have a book come out, I have to say it's like the one thing I, I, I kind of get nervous in, about doing other shows because I never know, are they going to want me there? Are oh. you going to get bumped off because uh, the, the president did something or whatever? <laughs> but Phil is always kind enough to, to make room for me. And it's always the nicest conversation. And oh. he always reads the book, which I can't oh. tell you how many times I've gone on, you know, programs and they'll say, so Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch, um, why Tuesdays? You know, like, <laughs> yes. and you go, okay, here's someone who definitely didn't read the book. So uh, Phil always does, and and I like sitting with him. And it's, um, I'm, uh, I'm amazed at how smooth all of you, because you're a big part of the show, uh, do that show. I, the only thing I will say, Robin, it is so cold in that <laughs> studio that this morning when I did the show, 
Um, and maybe because I just came from Haiti and it's really hot. I don't know. But I sat down and my body was actually shaking. And I was uh -huh. thinking as I was talking to Phil, I wonder if television can pick up the fact that my chest muscle is going <laughs> up and down and up and down. So oh, if you see so something funny. funny on the film, by all means. That is so funny yeah. because I have to comment first on that. I walked into this office today, just now, 20 minutes ago. And I said, girls, I'm not sick. I always have the sniffles once I leave the studio because it is so cold yeah, in there. Yeah. It is freezing so is there in there. there a reason for that? I, it's because of the lights, okay. all the lights. And I've been in other studios, I will admit, they're not as cold as that one. You <laughs> probably didn't notice. I have a heater under my chair. Oh, well, and, I see. I was in the wrong chair. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm always wearing jackets. I'm always yeah. wearing long sleeves. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. But I can promise you, no one saw you shaking. Oh, good. No, okay. I couldn't tell. But oh. I agree. It's very, very cold in there. Well, other than that, it's a dream. It and, is a dream. And I'll tell you this. You never have to wonder if you can bring a new book on his show. He gets so excited uh -huh. that you're coming. He gets so excited when you write a new book. And I want to thank you for sending the autographed copy to both of us of this new book. We both sat down and read it. It was like it came to the house. I grabbed it. I got it first. And it's it's kind of like, and he said today, he gave the, the compliment, which is so sincere. Once you start reading the book, you cannot put it down. And he was like, hurry up. I want to read it. Mm. He gets so excited when your books come. And I want to say thank you also, because when you do, you always give the audience a copy of the book. And I love that because there are a lot of authors that come and don't give the audience really? a book. But you were so, yes, yes. Oh, I, I'm, I'm so pleased to do it. I mean, <sighs> you know, when you write for a living, business parts of it aside, I never got into it for that part of uh -huh. it. I mean, Tuesdays with Maury, which was the book that sort of launched me, was uh -huh. written to pay Maury's medical bills oh, and uh -huh. I gave him uh -huh. all the money. Uh -huh. So it wasn't a business decision to get uh -huh. in it. But... As a writer, you just want people to read you. Yeah. So why wouldn't you want to give your book? I away, agree. Know? It was so kind of you to do that yeah. for the audience and the virtual audience. Yeah. That's a double bonus. And so I just thank you so much for that. And uh, it was very touching today when the two of you, when the two of you are together, you can tell there's this mutual love and respect. Yeah, there is. And it was very touching today to sit there and listen to the two of you talk about this new book. Yeah. He loved it. Well, Phil's a deep thinker, uh, and, you know, I, I love the fact that he, he reads my books and then he gets right to the core of it, and he says, I think you were trying to say this, weren't you? And he's always right. And um. in this book, um, he paid me a nice compliment uh, uh, and, and, and about the story, mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of a fantastic premise to begin with, and it's, it was one of those books, sometimes you think of a, of a book that, you know, you say, well, it's a pretty simple idea, but if I write it really well... I'd probably be able to make a good book out of it. Other times, you think long and hard until you get the idea, but the idea itself almost can't lose once you've thought up the idea. And I thought, in this case, Stranger in the Light, but was kind of that. Do you want me to say what the idea was? Or? Uh, yes, I do. I, okay. I was talking so much about you and Philip on the show, and he kept saying, I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to give too much away, but uh, let's forget about everything he said, and I'm going to let you tell our listeners all about the stranger in the lifeboat. And so I was a little nervous about saying too much because he said that today. Yeah. Well, maybe that's because we don't know for sure when that show is going to air, but 
I really, I love the book so much. And I first want to ask you, were you surprised when he said it was his favorite book you've written so far? Yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, uh, I wasn't. Uh, I was really surprised and and thrilled, but very surprised. You know this. You're a writer, and you've written very successful books. You always want your latest book to be your best book, uh, and so you know you don't want someone to say this is good. I kind of like the one ten books ago though. That was my favorite because you say, well, I can't do anything about that. That's done. You want your newest thing to be good. So when he said that, I was thrilled. Yes. And I hope other people feel the same. Okay, so tell all of our listeners about The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Well, here's the idea. The, they, the richest man in the world has this big gathering on his luxury yacht in the middle of the ocean. He invites the most influential and powerful people in the world to come on it. And just before they're about to finish, there's this mysterious explosion. The whole thing blows up. And only 10 people survive in the ocean. They manage to get to a life raft. Half of them are the rich guests, including the richest guy in the world. And half of them are the workers who serve them on the boat. And for two days, three days, there's nobody comes for them. There's no planes. There's no boats. They're running out of food. They're running out of water. They're becoming desperate. They're crying out for help. They're doing what we all would do. Uh And suddenly... Uh, in the middle of the ocean, they see this body floating and, and they get over to it and they pull the body in. And it's a, a young man, uh, very nondescript, not very average looking, nothing special about him. And they start peppering him with questions. Where are you? Where'd you come from? How were you in the middle of the ocean? How'd you survive? And he doesn't say anything. And finally, one of the women says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that's basically when I say you come up with the idea first, you know, when, when I finally came up with that idea and, and that sentence, I said, okay, that's the premise for the book. And you pretty much, and then it's up to you not to screw it up because you've yeah. got people interested and say, okay, well, what happens oh, next? And, wow. you know, what happens next is what happens next when, you know, they, they basically, after they're stunned and, and they say, well, wait a minute, if you're the Lord, you know, what are you doing here? And he says, well, weren't you calling for me, you know? And they realized, well, yeah, they were all saying, please, God, help us, all that kind of thing. And then they said, well, are you here to save us? And he puts down a challenge. He says, I can only save you if everybody in this boat believes in me and that I am who I am at the same time. Otherwise, I can't. And, of course, there are some on the boat who don't believe in that kind of idea and some who really do. And so the book starts to follow what happens as the days go by and they're fighting over whether this guy is real or not and why aren't things getting better for them and, and, and you know, why, hasn't he just, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and save them if he's God? And, and all the debates that we tend to have about faith, about, well, if there's really a God out there, then how come bad things are happening? You know, but wait a minute, look at this. This was a good thing. Maybe it was God. Well, maybe it was a coincidence. How do you know it was God? All those kind of arguments go on as the days pass in this boat and things get tougher and tougher and some of the people start dying and mysteries start happening. And so it's a bit of an event for me, it's like the biggest adventure book I've ever written. I had a lot of fun writing about people out in the middle of the ocean, what you do to survive and you know, how you eat and all that. Um, and it of course has a, you know, my, like most of my books, there's, there is a point, there's uh-huh. a lesson to be learned from mm-hmm. it. And, um, uh, we can talk about that if you want. Oh, well, I want to talk about everything that you want to talk about, about the book. Each page is so profound because everyone, I believe, listening right now will have a different feeling with each page. I know how I feel. I do believe in the Lord. So when I say that, it's not like, oh, do I believe in the Lord or do I not? No, no, I do. 
And I do believe that the Lord has a plan for all of us. But it was still very thought-provoking for me. Well, one of the reasons I think maybe you said what you just did was very interesting to me, because you said, well, I am someone who believes in God, but yet it was thought-provoking. Well, that's good, because the character who, and I'm not going to say whether he is or isn't God. You're right. going to have to read the book to find out. That's it's right. not again. I'm not, I'm not saying he is. I'm that's just right. saying he says he is. That's right. He doesn't behave all the time like you might necessarily expect the God exactly. to behave. Exactly. You know, for example, there's this time where they're saying, we have nothing to drink, you know, we're out of all of our water. Can't you do something? Can't you do something? Uh, and he said, I told you what you need to do to be saved. And yeah, yeah, we have to all believe in you at the same time. But meanwhile, do something, do something. He goes to sleep. And they go, he goes to sleep. We're asking him, he goes to sleep. But then while he's sleeping, it starts to rain. And they rush out and they, they grab like cups or things and try to get as much rain as they can. And all of a sudden, the rainstorm stops. And he wakes up and they yell at him, keep it going, keep it going. And he says, oh, so you believe that I made that rain? And they go, well, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but keep it going, make, make more of it. And he turns and he looks at them and he says, no. Now, that's not, you know, if you say, well, God, uh -huh. God would say yes to us for everything. Uh -huh. But the truth is in life, there are many times we th ask things from God, if we believe in God, and the answer is no. The uh, or, we, or the answer is we don't get what we want. Uh -huh. I believe, and there's a moment in the book where one of the people asks him, do you answer all the prayers? Yes. And he says, I answer all the prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. The answer is and no. that's part of our life, isn't it? When yeah. we say, I really want this to happen, I really want this to happen, and it doesn't happen. So then we're left with that idea like, well, did God let me down? Or does God not like me? Or do, am I not praying hard enough? Am I not a good enough person? And kind of one of the points I'm trying to make in this book is that it's not as simple. The universe, God, whatever you believe in, it's not as simple as you ask, you get. That's right. Sometimes you ask and you don't get what you ask for, but down the road, you actually will through a very kind of circuitous route that you didn't even see coming. How many times in your life have you said, oh, I was so upset when this happened, but now looking back on it, it was the best thing that could have happened, right? I understand, right? yes. Well, that's how God fate, the universe can often work. And I've had it happen many times in my yes. life, enough to know that, okay, this is an idea that everybody can relate mm -hmm. to. So I made this God-like character very puzzling, you know, yes. like sometimes he, he's really kind and does exactly what you think, and other times he's not responsive at all. That's right. I have to say right now, I have a very favorite verse in the Bible, Luke chapter 1, verse 45. And I have it framed on my vanity in my bathroom. And it is, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Mm. And I thought of that when I read that part of the book, because I have to always believe yeah. he will fulfill his yeah. promise to me. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful verse. There's a, amongst the 10 people, I mean, there's, there's a couple of cooks mm -hmm. uh, who are from Haiti, and I'll explain that a little later on. And yeah. uh, there's a deckhand, and there's a woman who does hair on the, uh, uh, on the boat for the guests. Uh, then there's an extremely rich Indian woman who started her own cosmetics firm, you know, multi-billionaire. There's a Greek ambassador, um, and uh, there's, the, like I said, the richest guy in the, in the world. There's a British uh, TV magnet. So there's all these different kinds of personalities. And you see, well, in a lifeboat, it doesn't really matter how much money you have or how That's famous right. you might be or how good-looking you are. That's Everybody right. has to sort of survive. And then there's this little girl whose name is Alice, and she doesn't speak at all. They found her floating on a deck chair out in the water, mm -hmm. and the whole time she doesn't speak, and yet it seems like she's the one 
even though she doesn't speak, who's drawn to this Lord character all the time. She listens to every word that he says. She, she, she stares at him. And I put that in because, as you know, Robin, I, I have an orphanage that I operate in Haiti, yes. and I'm there every month, and, and I'm going on 12 years now. And I see the faith of children, the faith of children who have nothing, and they sing and they pray with such fervor and such joy, and they and and they say thank God at the end of the day, and all their possessions could fit into a little twelve inch by twelve inch cubby. That's all they own. Mm -hmm. They have no iPhones, no computers, no no TV, no anything, and yet they're so joyous, so happy, and so faithful. And I'm reminded that there's an old expression: "There's no faith like the faith of a child." Yep. And so I put a child on the boat <sighs> to be. You know, because like believing in Santa Claus, believing in the, you have to have a certain kind of acceptance, Yes. you know, and we, as adults, we sometimes, we laugh at that, like, oh, the silly child who still believes in the tooth fairy, but we don't realize that that kind of faith yes. is something that we miss as adults. That's if right. only we had that kind That's of, right. yes, it's going to be okay. You know, I believe in something, the universe is going to guide me. We lose that somehow along the way. She's in the boat to kind of remind everybody that uh, that should be what they're working towards, yes, not the other way around. That innocence, yeah. that innocence that we all lose, That's right. that we need to have around all the time. Yeah. And Philip even asked you about the child, Alice. Yeah. yeah. Tell us who else that Alice character is based on. So some of the listeners, if they've read any of my work, um, mm -hmm know that the last book I wrote was called Finding Chica. And that yeah. was a true story, a nonfiction yeah. book about amongst the kids at the orphanage, which I, I, I went to right after the earthquake of 2010. I now have to refer to it as the first earthquake because there was already another right. one this summer. Right. Uh, and uh, I took over an orphanage down there and started running it. And I go every month and I started admitting new kids. And ultimately we got, we have 53 children there that we oh. raise right now. And one of them was a little girl who, uh, who, um, was born three days before that earthquake and survived it when a she was inside the house on her mother's chest on a bed in this one-room cinder block house, if you can call it a house, and the earth started shaking. The walls fell down, but the roof slid backwards because it was a tin roof. It slid backwards off of the house, and they were left, they survived. They were left like naked totally to the sky, fully exposed, but they survived. Just three days old she was. <gasps> and that night she slept out in the fields in a, sh in, in, a, in a bed of sugarcane leaves. They take the leaves and they made a bed for her because there was nothing left. And she slept like that for about six weeks. So I always said she was born tough. I mean, you know, three yep. days old. Her mother ended up dying two years later in that same rebuilt cinder block house oh. when she was giving birth to a baby brother and there was no doctor present because there's never any doctors present out in the provinces where the Haitian women live. And um, something happened. I'm sure if she was in a hospital, she would have been fine. Yeah. But she bled to death. And the baby, the mother died in the same bed that the baby was born in. Mm. And that was the last time that Chica saw her mother or her brother. Oh. Uh, and Chica, the little girl, was taken away. She was brought to our orphanage. She lived with us for three years as the youngest and funniest of our kids. And she oh. bossed everybody around. She told everybody who could go to the bathroom and who couldn't. Oh. She had one of these voices, like an Ethel Merman-like voice. Oh. She was a tiny little girl. Yes. And she could, uh -huh. you know, that's kind of yes. thing. And she was, so she was funny. Everybody yes. was just, she was just funny. She was rough and tumble and funny. And then when she was five, she developed a, a brain tumor. Uh -huh. uh, and they told us in Haiti, uh, you know, when we managed to get an MRI from the one MRI machine in the whole country, they said, 
there's something in her brain and whatever it is, there's nobody in Haiti who can help her. And so we took her to America, Robin, thinking that, all right, that's Haitian medicine. We'll bring her here. She'll be cured. We'll take her back. She's five. How yeah. bad could it be? And in America, we learned that what she had was something called DIPG, which is always fatal, kills kids usually within about four months. Oh. And they told us, just take her back to Haiti and let her, she'll die quietly there. And, you know, part of me said, well, I guess that would be the easiest thing to do. But I knew her life story. I knew she had survived an earthquake at three days old. I knew she had survived losing her mother and her family and coming to us. So Janine and I, my wife said, we looked at each other. We said, no, we're not going to do that. She's a fighter and we'll fight to the end with her, but we're going to do anything there is to keep this girl alive. And that started a, a two year journey, not four mm. months or eight months or 12 or 16, but two years that we were a family mm -hmm. and we traveled around the world looking for a cure. And along the way, she became this just amazing, funny, yes. even in the light of having her head shaved and yes. bloating up on steroids. She was hysterical and loving and warm and, and taught us everything that we could learn about parenting. <sighs> and when I look at it in the, the reason that I put a character like a little girl about the same age as her in the boat is because at the time, my wife and I, who had never had children of our own, but always wanted them, we did not think, okay, this is a good thing. You know, she's got a brain tumor and we're going to have to suddenly take care of her. We're, we're in our 50s, late 50s, and suddenly we're going to become parents to a five-year-old who's going to be sleeping in our bed, who every day we're going to have to think about a doctor appointment and this, that. It's not something you like want to willingly take on. But when I look back on it now, Robin, mm -hmm. it was absolutely the best thing that oh. we ever had a chance to have. Oh. We got to be this family for two years oh. and she got to have a mommy and a daddy, yeah. which she had never had in her life that way for those two years. And so just like the idea of the stranger in a lifeboat, you, you think you're looking for something, well, God must look like this or God's going to act like this or the universe is going to act like this when it's working. You never think it might be working even when bad news is coming, mm -hmm. but it was. I, we look back uh, on that time with Chica as the best years of our lives. Oh, you know? that's so beautiful. And I remember all of the time of the three of you together. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Right. The two of you were so happy and devoted. Yeah. It was a beautiful time in your life and hers. Yeah. And she taught us amazing things. And you know, because you're a great mom. Thank and you've you. got great kids, and I, I know some of them, and, uh, you know, you can see your influence in them. Thank you. Um, and you know that your children teach you more than you ever teach them. Oh, yes. And one time with Chica, uh, towards the end of, you know, her, her, her time on earth, the disease had robbed her of her ability to walk, and so yeah. I had to carry her. I was her taxi, you know, take, take her to the bathroom, walk her to the car, walk her, you know, and she was perfectly yeah. fine with that, just lift her yeah. arms, and I had to carry her, but she, she weighed a lot. It was heavy. Yeah. And uh, we were sitting there playing cards one time. I, I mean, a coloring. We were coloring. And I looked at my watch. I realized I was late for a radio show I had to be on. And I said, Chica, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay in color. Uh, I said, Chica, I have to work. And she said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. Oh. And I said, okay, but Chica, it's not the same thing because this is my job. And she crossed her arms, you know, and she pouted a little bit. And she said, no, it's not. Your job is carrying me. Oh. And, oh, Robin, I just oh. was floored when I heard oh. that because not only was it funny, but she was so right. Yeah. You know, like, of course, 
it was that thing that went off in my head. Of course, my job is carrying her. And it's the best job, you know, I was, I will ever had, had yeah. ever have, and will ever had. And all of us who have children, it's our job to carry the children in our lives uh. through the good, through the, the bad, the sick. And if you're blessed enough to have resources, uh. then it's your job to carry the sick and forgotten children of the world oh, too. God bless you. And that's what your arms are for. They're not for car- like mine had been for so much of my life, carrying your accomplishments or your your awards or your recognition uh-huh. or your money. Oh, so you know, true. you have to drop all that and just to carry a child. God, and uh, she gave me that blessing. Huh. God bless you, both of you. He already has. Oh, yes, he has. And then you have your orphanage. Yeah. And it's grown so much. And yeah. you just were telling Philip and I today such wonderful, beautiful stories about how they've grown and and accomplished so much. And so yeah. God has truly blessed you. And Absolutely. I have to tell you, when I read about her in the lifeboat, I knew it was about her. I yeah. knew I knew it would be about her. And yeah. I, I don't know. I just have a feeling that there will be a chica in every book you ever write. You are so wise and you're so correct. And I thought about that because there's kind of been a Maury in every one of my books ever since Tuesdays with Maury, some, some wisp of him, an older man or some wisdom, whatever. And now I think you're right. There's going to be a chica in, in some form in every so. one of the yes. books that I write. But I knew that. That's okay. Children are there to teach us. strongly in my heart when I read about Alice. Thank you for picking that out. You always come up with the most incredible stories, and you must never struggle with writer's block, but do you? No, actually, uh, I don't. I'm, I'm blessed in that way that I have a different problem. I have so many ideas that I want to get out, and I look at my age, and I look at the average lifespan, and I go, okay, if it takes me two years to keep writing a book, I'm not going to get to all of these, you know, like I, I'm going to need to live to 128, you know, to get to the ones that I already written Somehow down. I think you will. Oh, well, <laughs> you, you let me know how I'm going to figure that one out. But uh, I no, think I, someone I, else has already, is working on yes, it. Yes, I hope <laughs> someone's working on that. Yes, figured it out. Over, because... over time. But okay, I know I, 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 I have a lot of ideas and, and, um, you know, I, I never think, oh, my God, I can't. I don't know what there's. It's a blank page. There's nothing to oh, do. I just want to get to all of them. And oh, I love that. I wish I had started younger, you know. I didn't really start writing books until I was, well, Tuesdays with Maury, I was, I was 37. Really? Um, yeah. And that's not old, but, I no. mean, like, I think about the first 15, 17 years, I could have been doing that, too. Yeah. But, you know, right. you don't have anything to say yet. That's, yeah. Those are the yeah. years that you're learning. You weren't supposed to, yeah. I guess. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. 
stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Okay, so we do two things in this podcast, and one of them is the drink of the day. Ah. And we create a drink of the day that is focused on the podcast and the topic and our guest. Okay. And so in honor of your multifaceted career, I wanted to create a classic cocktail that could be paired with a good book or a sports game. Wow. So I created the cherry vanilla old fashioned. Wow. Yes. It's one and, of my favorite flavors. Oh, okay. really? I love cherry vanilla. Oh, I love that. Right. So for all the listeners out there, we're having the classic cocktail of an old-fashioned. You take two frozen cherries, thawed, three ounces of bourbon, one half ounce of Chambord, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, three dashes of cherry vanilla bitters, or one-third of a dropper. You muddle the cherries in a shaker, add in all other ingredients, add ice, and stir. Strain the mixture into a glass with ice and top with a cocktail cherry or frozen cherry. And I have to tell you, it's delicious. And since we're here together, we both have one. And I'll say cheers to you. Cheers to you, yes. A long-distance tap of the glass. Wow. I'm not driving, by the way, so. And I never drink bourbon, but. Wow. Cheers to you. Is that oh, strong? Oh, that is good. No, well, I'm not much of a drinker, so everything's strong to me. I'm not either. But this I is delicious. This podcast can get you in a lot of trouble if you do it I five know. days a week. <laughs> I know. Lots of times. Yesterday, we had infused water in one podcast, so uh, it's not always with alcohol. It's not always so. alcohol. Well, this is delicious and cold mm -hmm. and very cherry vanilla, the, my favorite. Feel free not to have to drink it. No, I, I won't be able to finish it or I won't be able to answer a question. I won't be either. able to ask a question. But thank but you for that. I want the listeners to know that you can go to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com and you can see a photo of the finished prepared drink and you can see the recipe. And I have to say, it's really beautiful and it's really very tasty. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So now, of course, Tuesdays with Maury is such an iconic book that really catapulted your writing career. But there was a world where you might not have even met Maury. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Right up on, uh, well... So the first day I met Maury was the first day of college. And mm. at that point, I was not the person that I think people think they know me to be now. I wasn't introspective. I wasn't looking for inspiration. I was looking for an easy class to take. Yeah. Uh, mm. And I walked into this class, Sociology uh, 101. Maury was teaching it, and there were nine kids in the class. And I immediately, I look, I'm standing in the doorway, and I look in, and I go, nine kids, whoa. He's like, if I cut this class or miss it, they'll know I'm not here. Yeah. I, I don't want that. I want one of those classes <laughs> where I can hide in the back. So I was actually, Robin, oh. walking down the hall. I had turned. I was walking down the hall to go drop the class because you could go to the <gasps> registrar and just drop your class. And he started calling roll. And I heard him say, you know, one of the problems when your last name begins with A, yes. <laughs> you can't get out quickly enough. And he said, Mitchell Album. And I froze. I was halfway out the door, halfway to the hallway. And when I look back on it now... I could have kept going because he didn't know who I was. So he wouldn't kept he wouldn't have said Mitchell Alwyn. Yeah. He would have said, oh, yeah. I guess he's not here. But that little guilt inside of me, yeah. I kind of turned and I stepped back in and I raised my hand. <gasps> and I said, here. And he said, is it Mitch or Mitchell? Which do you prefer? Oh. So I was kind of taken aback because I have one of those names that, you know, Mitch, Mitchie, Mitchell, they can call yeah. you anything. 
I said, well, uh, Mitch, Mitch is what my friends call me. And he said, well, Mitch it is. And Mitch, and I said, yes. He said, I hope one day you'll think of me as your friend. Oh. So I knew cutting the class was out of the question yeah. <laughs> at that point. But also, oh. I mean, in that moment, my whole life changed. This oh. is what I mean by, you know, the idea of a stranger in a lifeboat, that we oh. have no idea what's being sent to us by the universe, by God or whatever. That moment when he called my name and roll, and I end up coming back in the class instead of dropping it, and I end up having Maury as my professor, not just for that class, but for all four years, and it became oh. like an uncle to me, and he was such a guiding force. And then 16 years later, I end up going seeing him again. I end up writing this book to pay his medical bills. It changes the trajectory of my whole life, all based on that moment when he called roll and I could have gone right, but I went left instead. That's the universe sending you something that you don't even yes. understand until years, years later. That is so beautiful. And then he said the word friend. Yeah. To you. Yeah. Oh. How many college professors introduce themselves that way? Not That's many. That's right. That's yeah. right. That is so beautiful. Some things in life are meant to be, and well, that, that is truly one of them. How did you reconnect with him years after graduation when you just said years yeah. later? Did you well, just have a... Sad, now, this is the sad part of the story. Uh, we become very, very close in college. I took every class he offered. I majored in sociology. I wrote my honors thesis with him. And so just to be around him, we walked yes. around campus together. We ate meals together. We were like like an uncle and a, you know, a nephew. And then on the last day of class... I bought him a briefcase. Um, I'd never bought a professor, I never bought any teacher uh -huh. a present, but I wanted to get him some, got him this briefcase. I had his initials put on it. It was, it was not expensive. It was gotta be the cheapest briefcase known to man. I didn't have a dime to my name, but he took it and he turned it around every which way and he started to cry a little uh -huh. bit and he hugged me. He said, Mitch, you're one of the good ones. Promise me you'll stay in touch. I said, okay, I will. He said, promise. I said, okay, I promise. Say it in a sentence. Oh. <laughs> okay, I promise I'll stay in touch. And then, Robin, sadly, I graduated, and I got extremely ambitious. And I went off into the world and did nothing but think of myself and my own career and my own ambition and how I could get ahead for 16 years without even a phone call to him. Never called him, never wrote I was just, you know, there was always something else to, another thing to be, and I thought about him. I uh -huh. should I should call, or I should write, or I should drop by, but I never did. And then 16 years later, when I had become quite accomplished, um, I don't think I'd met Phil yet, but but I was in the sports writing world. Mm -hmm. I was very well known. I was on ESPN. I had a radio program. I had a big column. I wrote for magazines. I was, you know, close to the top of my profession, and I happened to be flipping the television set one night, and the Nightline program came on with Ted Koppel. And Ted Koppel says, uh, who is Maury Schwartz, and why, after tonight's program, are you going to care so much about him? And suddenly, <gasps> this white-haired, withered-looking version of my old professor is on the TV screen. And I'm sitting in my house in Michigan watching this, and he's talking about what it's like to die from Lou Gehrig's disease, which he had. Yeah. And it hit me like a, you know, a thunderbolt. Oh, my God, 16 years, not even a phone call, and now he's got a few months left to live. What do I do? You asked me how we were reunited. Guilt, you know, I felt guilty. And I said, all right, I'm going to just call him up. Oh. One phone call, that'll be it. Ease my conscience. 
when I was in college, I used to call Maury coach. It was like a sports affectation, you know, hi coach, how you doing? I didn't even remember it. But I called his number, his nurse answered the phone, she handed it to him. I still remember the conversation exactly. It went exactly like this. I said, Professor Schwartz, my name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. The first thing he said to me was, how come you didn't call me coach? Oh. 16 years had passed, and that's what he remembered that, and I didn't. Oh. And needless to say, by the end of the phone call, I was coming to visit him because guilt is a very powerful oh. motivator, yes, right? Yes, it did. So I was going to go visit him once. That was going to be it. But when I got there, I was so taken with, he was in a wheelchair, he could barely, you know, his legs were shot, he could barely move his arms, he was trying to cut a little piece of tomato and lift it up to his mouth, it kept falling off, then the fork, he'd lift it up again, it would fall off, but he never complained, he talked about the amazing things he was learning about his life as, as it was ebbing out of him and as he was decaying, the people who were coming back to see him, the reach of the Nightline program and how many people had reached out and how wonderful it was to see me again, never asked me about my job or about my money or about my success or anything. He asked me, are you happy with your life? Have you found someone to share your life with? Those kinds of questions. And I ended up sitting with him and it was like I was back in college again. Uh -huh. Suddenly I was all those 16 years of just chasing ambition and paychecks and accomplishments were gone. And I was like a kid in a, in a uh -huh. desk again. And when I flew home that night, I said, you know, you're 37, which is how old I was and you're perfectly healthy, and he's 78, and he's dying, but he seems 10 times happier with his life than you are with yours. There's something the matter with this equation. And I began to go back. The next Tuesday, I went back, and then the next Tuesday, and then Tuesdays just became our days. That's how the Tuesdays with uh -huh. Maury began. And uh -huh. I went to every Tuesday until the day that he died. And we ended up taking this last class together every Tuesday about the meaning of life once you know you're going to die. <gasps> And every week we were able to go through one subject or another and he would say, well, this matters. This doesn't really matter. You think this matters now, but when you get to where I am and you will get to where I am, oh. he would always say, it's not going to matter. And it was the most precious education I could ever have, better than all my years of schooling combined, uh -huh. to hear from a man who had one foot already on the other side saying, don't make this mistake don't make this mistake. Now that I see this, I wish I had done this differently, that kind of thing. Uh, and the end of the story is, you know, he was, I found out towards the end that he didn't have enough money to pay his medical bills or for his home or for his mortgage. And he said, I'm going to die two deaths. One when I die from Lou Gehrig's and one when my family has to sell the house and whatever, I'm going to ruin them financially because ALS is an expensive disease. It goes on for two, three years and all the costs involved and home people and all that. So I got the idea that maybe I could write a book to pay his medical bills. And the truth of it is, and you'll appreciate this, you and Phil, because you've been through the book business, nobody wanted it. You know, you can say that, oh, come on, Tuesdays with Murray. I'm, I was there. I went into every one of these offices. Oh, no, boring, depressing. You're a sports writer. What do you know about this? Come back in 20 years when you know how to write a memoir. You don't even know what a memoir is. <gasps> And if it had just been for me, Robin, I probably would have given up and just said, okay, I, I guess I don't have it. But because it was for him and I knew he needed the money, <gasps> I kept pressing and I found one publisher willing to do it three weeks before he died. <gasps> and I said, I just want you to give me enough money to pay his medical bills. That's it. This is, I'm not in this for me or whatever. And they did. <gasps> and I went and I told him, 
I still remember the day that I told him because it was it was a beautiful day. I said, hey, you know this? Because we were been taping our conversations. He wanted me to write a thesis about our conversations. And I, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him, you know, I wasn't enrolled in college anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you write a thesis when you're not in school. Oh. Uh, but I said, you know, all these tapes and these conversations. I mean, yeah. Well, I found a publisher who wants to publish them as a book. He said, really? Who? And I said, Doubleday. And he goes, oh, I heard of them. Oh. I said, well, not only that, but they're going to give us some money for this. And I want you to take all this money and I want you to pay your medical bills so you don't have to die a second death. And, you know, he cried and I cried a little. And, you know, I always tell people, for me, that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury, even though I hadn't written the book. That was the, the culmination of the journey because I had finally learned to do one decent thing for somebody else instead of just taking for myself. And that was the best lesson that he could teach me. And so, you know, Maury died before I ever wrote a word of Tuesdays with Maury. And I always remind people of that. I said, you know, Maury's, that book is being taught around the world. Uh It's taught in Japan. It's taught in Sweden and Australia, China, all these places where they, forget me, I'm I'm, I'm not, I don't matter in the equation. Maury, all the wisdom that he had is still going on. Lives on. And he's not here to teach it. So we all have that ability inside yes. us to affect one person and maybe affect the world. Yes. You don't know. And he's living proof of that. <gasps> and he lived long enough for you to tell him. To tell him, but never to see a page of the book. Oh, but he lives on. Now he lives day. on. Every, well, we're talking about him right <gasps> yes, now. Yes, yes. Right? And I'm going to go back and read the book again. Yeah, it was, he, he's brilliant in the book. I'm okay, but he's Oh, he's I love hearing the story. So... Do you ever think about the fact that you likely have had an impact on someone's life the same way Maury had on yours? I, I would like to think I have. I don't think I've. I don't think I've you. quite done that yet, um, because you know I've taught a lot of people, a lot of kids. You know, the kids from Haiti. Yes. And I think that's where I've probably had the biggest effect, because um, you know I, I had. Not too long ago when I was there, I don't have the kids call me dad or pop or anything like that. I'm Mr. Mitch to them, and my wife is Miss Janine, even though for many of them, you know, they don't remember their their, their natural birth parents. They come to us when they're two or three years old. Um, and there was one of our teenage girls uh, who, when she was early teens, she gave us a hard time. She's a typical teenage kind of eye rolling and things like that. Not Not quite like America, but... Um, but you know, I've known her now for 12 years, you know, and, um, she gave me a letter to give to somebody who had visited us. And she said, just give him, give, give him this letter. I said, okay. And I said, can I read it? Cause I don't like to pass. And she said, yeah, yeah you can read it. So I, I was on the plane home and I opened it up and she's now 19 and she was just right. It was a regular letter to a kid. And she said, um, and if you can get this thing that she wanted, give it to my dad and he'll bring it down with him the next time he comes down. And she was talking about me. Oh. And, you know, that's when you realize like, wow, I didn't think I, she thought of me that oh, way. And I didn't so think she beautiful. referred to me that way. And uh, that's when you begin to have a little bit of that sense of maybe you're having that influence on somebody. Yes. But um, I'm no Maury, I can tell you that. You know, oh. I don't have that kind of wisdom uh, uh, maybe in my dying days, it'll become clearer to me, but I, I hope that's no time soon because, um, I, I got a lot of kids to raise and oh. the youngest one's one. 
So wow. I'm already projecting ahead one. Let's see, to get her to college, I got to go another 18 years oh. here. So. You're a very humble man, let me tell you. Very humble. Well, not as humble as I should be. We, oh, should, we I, should all be pretty humble. I don't believe that. Well, you know that I just absolutely adore your wife, Janine. Yeah. Now, I always get asked, what's my secret to a successful marriage? So do you have a secret of your own? Yeah. Um, Janine and I have talked about it many times. Um, and I believe that there are three parties to a marriage. There's the husband and there's the wife or whatever nouns we're using uh -huh. these days. And then there's the marriage itself. Mm -hmm. And you have to love all three because there are going to be times where the husband's not going to be so crazy about the wife and the wife might not be so crazy about the husband, but you need to be crazy about the marriage. Oh, and we have a wall in our kitchen and we've changed our kitchen a couple times over the years, but the wall has never changed. Mm. And that wall has photos mm. of us starting from when we were dating to when we got married, to our family, to all just crazy moments. I'm sure you have a version of yes. this, but it's a whole wall. <gasps> and I always say that there are times when that wall is the only thing that you can feel great about on that particular moment <laughs> about your marriage. But uh -huh. you go and you look at it and you say, no, this is something special. We yeah. built this together. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if I'm angry or I'm feeling this or feeling that. I, I will never turn my back on this, oh. you know. And if you love that wall, if you love that marriage, mm -hmm. then you can ride the tide of what is inevitably, even with the most perfect couple, mm -hmm. there are always waves in a relationship. Oh, yes. Yes. It's just natural. And we've come through a lot. You know, I think the biggest test of our marriage um, and I think Janine would agree with me, is when you lose a child, it is very, very common to break up. Marriages uh -huh. break up all the time because mm -hmm. you want to blame somebody. Mm -hmm. And either you uh, you blame God or you blame the doctors, or but frequently you end up blaming your spouse. You could have done more. You could, and I have to say that Janine and I were, I mean, we had squabbles over, I don't want to give her that medicine, but we have to give her that medicine. Mm -hmm. But but for the most part, we we loved her together and we lost her together. Aww. And the last moment of Chica's life, she slept in our bedroom the whole time. And we were determined if she was going to pass away at age seven, it wasn't going to be in some hospital. No. And oh. she loved, uh, when we were in Germany, we lived in Germany for a short period of time trying to get her um, immunology treatments. And she loved it because we were in this tiny little flat, tiny, <laughs> tiny, there was no room for anything. It was tiny little kitchen, bathroom, and a bedroom. And so we all had to sleep in the same bed. And Chica loved that because she loved to sleep between us. Oh. And there was this time where she, I was on one side and Janine was on the other side. And she said, Mr. Mitch, Miss Janine, Mr. Mitch, Miss Janine, oh. kiss, 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 kiss. Oh. She liked to watch us kiss, 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 kiss. So we made like a little triangle over yeah. her and we kissed. And oh. then she clapped and she said, now you can live happily ever after. Oh. And which, of course, was tragic when you look back on it that she yeah. said that. But in the last moments of Chica's life, we were on both sides of her, too, in bed. And we held her and, and we, we saw her last breath leave her. And that in its own way, I guess it could have split us apart in a way that would yeah. be totally acceptable, but it didn't. We loved her together. We lost her together. And we're stronger as a result of having had her. You know, and uh, and that's when you know that third party, the marriage, is solid. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm proud to say that while we have to always work at it, especially me, um, our marriage is solid because of that. I love that. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. And I'm so sorry that you lost her. I am too. I'm so happy that you had her. I am too. And that you have each other. I am too. God bless you. That was a beautiful answer. Thank you. And Janine is a, she's a huge fan of yours, Robin. Thank she you. got, she just, every time I say I'm going to come going out, I'm going to do the Dr. Phil program. Is Robin going to be there? <laughs> I said, she usually is. Make sure you say hi to Robin. I said, you want me to say hi to Phil too? Yes, I had to Phil too. Make sure you say hi to Robin. We uh, just taped the show that celebrated our 20 years on the air. Wow. And I haven't missed a show. <laughs> you have not. That is remarkable. 20 years that show has been on the air. That is not. You haven't missed a single show? Not a single show. Oh, my gosh. And it wasn't. We didn't plan it that way. But from the first show, yes. So can you tell the listeners one more time when and where to buy your newest book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat? Well, the when would be now because yes. it's on sale everywhere. Yes. And the where would be pretty much everywhere. Uh, you know, the, the local bookstores, the Barnes and Nobles, the Independents, the Amazons, uh, anywhere where you can get a book. You know, hopefully it's easy to find. Oh, I'm uh, so happy. You know. I'm so excited for all of the listeners to have uh, the chance now to buy the book because it just came out. And uh, it's, it's going to be the most amazing uh, holiday gift I have a feeling everyone's going to be buying it for themselves and also for a lot of family, friends, and loved ones because I, I feel like it's the perfect gift for the holiday season. Okay, so we've come to the other second thing that I say we always do in every podcast, and that's play a game of the day. Okay. Do you like playing games? Sure, absolutely. We also create the game of the day around our guest and our topic. Wow. So we all know that you are quite the sports buff, but I'm going to see if I can stump you on some sports history. Oh, gosh, I'm sure you're going to win. <laughs> This game is called Hail Mary. Okay. I'm going to read you some wild sports stories, and you're going to have to tell me if the story is true or false. Okay. Okay, so are you ready? I am ready. Okay, number one. An Australian rower stopped in the middle of an Olympic race to let a family of ducks pass. Not true. That's true. It is. Oh, okay. Bobby Pierce in the 1928 Olympics. Well, Who would do that in I, the Olympics? I'm happy to say that I was not there. <laughs> me too. <laughs> a little early for me. Okay. A major league baseball pitcher threw a no-hitter while high on LSD. Uh, I remember a, a pitcher threw a no-hitter when high he said he was, he was uh, on something. Ooh. But I find it hard to believe that that would be LSD. So I'm going to say false. It's true. Uh I'm over two. Okay, Doc Ellis from the Pirates. Doc Ellis, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember the story. I just can't believe it was LSD. I can't either. Wow. I can't either. Okay, so three. A Canadian hockey player was fined for putting maple syrup on the puck. Uh, that's probably true. It's false. <laughs> I'm going to go for perfection and get them all wrong now. Oh, my gosh. I can't do anything I'm right. I'm trying to throw you with my look on my face. Yeah. Okay, number four. 
an NFL quarterback played an entire game with a broken leg. Uh, that's probably true. That's false. Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe partially broken leg? Uh, an entire game? I'm Come not, on. <laughs> I'm not doing very well here. Number five. In 2017, Tom Brady's Super Bowl jersey was stolen by a newspaper editor. That's false. It's true. Who was the newspaper editor? In 2017. It, it, I don't have that. I don't have that information. Wow. Oh, my gosh. But well, it was true. But since yeah, we know terrible. it was a newspaper editor, I bet they got caught in their trouble. Yeah. Number seven. A college basketball player sold his entire Pokemon card collection in order to pay for a teammate's tuition. False. That's false. Okay. Okay, the next one. A fan at an NBA game pretended to be a player and got on the court to warm up with the team. Yeah, that happened. It is. It is true. Yes. A New Orleans Pelican fan. Uh That's hilarious. Yeah. This is the last one. You need this one. <laughs> okay, yeah. Not, I think I'm kind of hopeless whether I get it or not. And trust me, listeners, he has not been sipping on that drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pro golfer Lee Westwood yeah. says he has never read a book in his life. That's so specific that I would think it has to be true. It's true. Yeah. I, why else would you pick Lee Westwood? Exactly. And why would he say We that? need to send Lee a copy of The Stranger in the Lifeboat. We're sending Lee this book for sure. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. My pleasure, Rob. It's been so much fun. It's been so wonderful. And before we wrap up, I need to ask you one final question. This podcast is about sharing secrets that change our lives. So can you share one major secret, anything you've learned from someone along the way that has dramatically impacted your life, mm. family or friend? Um, sure. There have been many, like you, uh, the older people in my life, parents, grandparents, all that, have, have had a tremendous, tremendous influence. But if I had to pick one that I think kind of altered uh, my trajectory, it would be Maury when he said, mm. um, well, I'll, I'll tell you how he said it. So, you know, Maury was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease, and I would watch a lot of people would come visit him who weren't like me. They weren't coming every week. They only came once to see him. And they were very uncomfortable because, you know, he's, you're dying. ALS is a very tough disease to look at. You can't move. You need to be carried from place to place. Your head needs to be turned just to even look at somebody. You, mm-hmm. you can't lift your arms. You can't. So it's tough for people. They're uncomfortable. So they would come in with strategies to try to cheer him up. You know, they'd bring pictures. They'd bring stories and say, I'm going to, I'm going to tell jokes. I'm going to be upbeat. I'm going to be upbeat. And they would go in the office, the door would close and they would come out an hour later in tears, Mm -hmm. but they would be crying about their love life, their job, their divorce, (gasps) their this thing. And they say, well, I don't know what happened. I went in to try to cheer him up. And after a couple minutes, whatever, he started asking me questions. So I started asking him. They started really asking me questions. Started asking. Next thing I know, I was crying. You know, I went in to try to comfort him, but he ended up comforting me. So I went into him after seeing this happen, Robin, so many times. I said, I don't get it. If ever anyone had finally earned the right to say the sentence, let's not talk about your problems. Let's talk about my problems. Uh-huh. It would be you. Look at you. you. You can't move. You need to be carried. Someone has to wipe your rear end. They have yeah. to blow your nose. Why don't you, you know, take advantage of it? You're the mother load of sympathy. 
And he looked at me, Robin, and here's the lesson. Here's the secret. He looked at me like I had just stepped out of a spaceship, and he said, Mitch, why would I ever take from people like that? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. <gasps> Giving makes me feel like I'm living. <gasps> and I have never forgotten that. It's oh. a profound little sentence, also rhymes, so it's easy to remember. Yeah. Uh, and I realized that if while he was in his dying breath, what made him feel most alive was giving to somebody else, then that was a key to the rest of my life to feel alive would be to give. And I have, that was the beginning of the second act of my life where most of my efforts at this stage of my life are in charity areas. And I don't say that for any accolades or attention or anything. They just that. are because that's how I choose to fill it up. I've got nine charities in Detroit. I've got an orphanage oh. I visit every every month in Haiti. I spend, you know, from five days to two weeks there. And I never feel more alive than oh. when I'm there and giving. And that was a great secret to learn that he shared with me. And uh, it shouldn't be a secret. Everybody You're should right. know that. You that's know? beautiful. You're right. It shouldn't be. <gasps> You have given to us and to the listeners so much. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. My pleasure. <gasps> that was just beautiful. What a beautiful secret to share with us. Thank you so much. So can you please tell the listeners the information that they need to learn more about you on social media, where they, where they can find out well, more about you and your charities and your foundation, everything? I'd rather they just found out about my charities. I think people can always figure out how to find out about me, but that's, to me... Thank you, but that's not important to okay. me. But what is important to me is our, our orphanage mm -hmm. uh, and the charities we have in Detroit. So you're kind. I'll, I'll just I'll just indulge you on those two things. Okay. Our orphanage is called the Have Faith Haiti Orphanage, and the website is havefaithhaiti.org. And you can find out how to sponsor one of our kids or anything like that. 100% of the money we get goes right to the kids. We don't take anything out for administrative costs uh -huh. or anything like that. 100% goes to feeding and educating the kids. Uh -huh. Havefaithhaiti.org. And the charities I operate in Detroit are called uh, Say Detroit and SayDetroit.org. And there's nine charities there ranging from daycare centers to a medical clinic for homeless children to after school programs to arts programs to senior citizens and veterans. And again, 100% of the money there goes to them. That If people want to find out about me, that's, that those are the best places oh, to go. That's beautiful. And for all of you listeners, you can go to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for all of that information. We'll have it on there. And I just thank all of you listeners for being here today because this was a very, very moving, beautiful episode. I'm so proud to have had Mitch here with us as a guest. So go to I've Got a Secret with RobinMcGraw.com for photos, for drink recipes, and for vlogs. So I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.